Good morning. Glad you are here. We are going to finish our series on times, talents, and treasures. And today we're going to look at treasures. But if you've got a a little handout, grab it. I've got some notes in the back of it. But I'm going to emphasize two things today. Right after this service, we're going to have a baptism service. So please stay. It is a phenomenal time. We've got about nine people getting baptized, and it's a lot of fun just to hear these testimonies and how God's changing people. Second thing is tonight at five o'clock, we do this service called a scribe, and it's where we come together in the activity center and we pray and we worship God through song. So right now we're going to tackle a text. Uh, We're going to actually look at a number of texts, because if you, if you think about the idea of treasures, from Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God talks about it. So I'm going to jump around a little bit today as we look at this, how we handle money and what we do with it. So you join me as I pray. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. I thank you for time to be here and have the privilege to worship together as a body of believers. We're grateful that you saved us. Help us to never forget what you did for us. And you bought us with a great price. And as that last song just said, I I pray that we are satisfied in our soul because we know you. So guide and direct our time. Help our time to be honoring to you this morning. Pray that my words honor your text. And most of all, we bring you glory and we are challenged on how we view giving in your precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, you notice life is temporary in which Christians are to see themselves as aliens in a foreign land. We are temporary residents on earth and you are a steward of what God has given you. I want to show you a picture of three things this morning, just to start us off and get you thinking. How many of you like to go to garage sales? I don't, but my wife does, so I raised it for my wife. Um, I want you to notice the first picture right here. A man went to a garage sale and he saw this painting, and he looked at it, and he told the owner, he says, I think that's worth a lot. And he goes, no, I bought it for like 15 bucks. And He says, I'll buy it from you for 15 bucks. Now, the guy that bought it didn't know exactly what he had, but he kept thinking, this might be worth something. He took it to an art gallery, and the curator there looked at it and said, this is a Picasso, and it is worth millions. This actually happened. I don't know if that's the exact painting, but it actually happened. So what would you do if that happened to you? The second scenario is the top corner, those coins and cans. John and Mary owned some land in Northern California, and every morning they would get up and go for a walk. And on their walk, you know, they would talk and they enjoy just walking around. And and part of the mountain there, the erosion had taken place over the years that they saw these cans. And Mary said to John, someday we probably should clean that up. He went down there and he, he, he started digging through the cans and found out it was full of gold coins dating to the early 19th century. 
At that time, it was the biggest treasure ever found in California, worth millions. What would you do? 14 years ago, I was on a trip to Israel, and our guide, that's this bottom one picture right here, our guide was taking us through this one part, and there was an archaeological dig going on. And he told us the story of what happened at that dig just recently. And he said there was a college girl in her second year of college training to be an archaeologist. And the site was pretty big, and they spread people out, and they told this young girl, hey, just work in this bedroom and clean it up before we start showing people. Well, as she was working in that room, they thought it was a bedroom. She noticed something It was different. This did not look like a bedroom. She had worked on other rooms before. And in the corner, there was a box, and it was clay, and she started digging around it, and, it, and she opened it up, and it was full of ancient coins from the first century, gold, silver, necklaces, all sorts of jewelry. She realized this was a bank from the first century, from the time of Christ. Now, she could have done a couple things. She could have buried it back because nobody knew she found it. And she could have came back later and taken it. Instead, she went, she found the main guy that was over the dig. She found him, and she found the guy that was over the Israel Museum because he was there and said, can I bring both of you? I've got to show you something I found. Brought them both to the site. She shows them what she found. They were so impressed with her integrity and her honesty that all these relics from antiquities are now in that museum. They decided to give her a full-ride scholarship. But she acted in great integrity. Now, most of you are thinking, ooh, I wish that would have happened to me. And if you've ever noticed this, People have a great desire for wealth. I would say most of the pastors and staff, we've met people that it seems like wealth is number one in their life. They think it will solve their problems. They think it will bring enjoyment. They also think it will be a form of contentment. It will help them with life, and they find out that really doesn't ever happen. It actually becomes a form of their, their savior. If I could just get a little more. You know, Jesus has a lot to say about treasures. And the text we're looking at today, and I will be jumping to a bunch of other texts, so just hold on, it's going to be a fun ride. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not steal. We're going to look at that text, but I want to give you another text in Matthew 13.44. It says this, Jesus is also speaking. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a hill, 
or a field, which a man has found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Now, he's not buying salvation. He realizes that salvation is the greatest gift God has ever given, and he's worthy, worth giving it all to Jesus. Because it's an amazing gift. See, the kingdom of heaven is far, far, far more valuable than anything this world could ever offer you. Salvation and righteousness is the most amazing treasure you will ever be given. Salvation is this amazing gift from God and is far more valuable than anything the world can offer you. Philippians 3.8 says this, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That was Paul. And what he's saying is, the world's offered me a lot. And losing him to gain Christ is far more important than anything. Grab your outline. I'm going to start with this because you have to understand this when we're talking about treasures or money or finances. Everything we have, God owns. This is a stewardship issue. And I'm going to explain what that means in a few seconds. Financial faithfulness ultimately flows out of the recognition that everything we have belongs to God. And it's because of this great salvation. You were bought with a great price. God paid the ultimate price, His Son, to save you and have a relationship with you throughout eternity. You were bought with a great price. Paul stated, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen to this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, a great price. So glorify God in your body. See, getting the great treasure is heaven. Now, I didn't know that when I accepted Christ. I mean, I knew I wanted to go to heaven. I'm sorry. I knew I didn't know much about having a relationship with the living God. When I accepted Christ, I'd heard about hell and I wasn't going to go there. And I heard about heaven. I'm like, I want to go there. Everybody in this room, if you got a glimpse of heaven, I couldn't hold you back from going there. If you had a glimpse of hell, I couldn't send you there either. You would do everything in your might to avoid it. That's the greatest treasure of all, is your salvation. You were bought with a great price. But God left you here on earth and He gave you a job. And your job is this, to be a steward of everything He's given you. 
But let's define stewardship. You got to get this down. It's the responsibility to manage all the resources of life for the glory of God. And acknowledging God as provider. Let me say that again. It's a responsibility to manage all the resources of life, everything He's given you, for the glory of God. And acknowledging God is the provider. In fact, the use of steward or stewardship is the, it's the smallest part of that is about money. It's a much bigger part. Stewardship is about what we've been sharing with you for the last three weeks. It's about stewardship of your time. You've all been given a set amount of hours in a day. What are you doing with it to bring glory to God? Chris preached on that two weeks ago. Last week, Andy preached on your talents and the gifts and abilities God's given you. Are you using them to bring glory to God? And what about the, everything He's given you? The money you have in the bank, the business, your house. Are you using them for God's glory? In Genesis chapter 24, I want to look at a steward. It's not the main focus of this text. Genesis chapter 24, I would say most of you are probably familiar with it. It is about Abraham finding a wife for his son Isaac. But he uses his steward. And his steward, his name is Eleazar. He's a godly man. Now, we're not going to go through all of Genesis 24 because it has 67 verses, and we would miss the baptisms today. We would be here till tomorrow. But it is a phenomenal read. It's about a father being concerned about who his son marries. I think every family should read it. Because Abraham was faithful to God he knew what God wanted, and he says, I want a godly woman for my son. But he uses a man named Eleazar to go and find a wife, and her name was Rebecca. So it's an amazing love story. And I hate to use the word love story. It actually happened. When you say story today, people tend to think, oh, it's just made up. Abraham now is 140 years old and Sarah has passed. And he wants a wife for his son, but he does not want a Canaanite wife. He's living in the land of Canaan. There was a history of Canaanites being idolaters or idol worshipers. And so he says, no, I want you to go to my homeland. I want you to go to my relatives and find a wife there. And it's a 450-mile journey. And Eliezer's not young, and he goes, I'm going to do it because my master told me to do it. So what I want to do is just give you a little summary of what Eliezer did. It's an amazing account. And in Genesis 24, 2, it says this, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, was, who was in charge of all that he had. Did you notice? All that he had. Not some, all that he had. 
put your hand under my thigh, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. So hold on to that. We know it's Eliezer because in Genesis 15.2, it says, but Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So let me give you six things about him. Eliezer was responsible for everything that belonged to Abraham. And this was common in the Old Testament, even all the way up into the New Testament. You would have a steward that would take care of everything in your household. They might take care of your kids. They might take care of the finances. They would take care of keeping the house up. But they, they pretty much controlled everything. You had to have great trust in a steward. So he had control of everything Eliezer did. And as a servant, number two, Eliezer was to do whatever the master required of him. So Abraham goes and grabs Eliezer and says, I want you to go away and I want you to find a wife for my son who's probably mid-20s, young 20s in that range. And he basically outlines, I want her to be a godly woman. And that's number three. Eliezer was anxious to do the will of his master. But Eliezer wanted clarity. And from verse 3 all the way to 28, he sits down with Abraham and says, describe what I'm looking for. Can you imagine? You're going to go to a foreign country and you're going to find a wife for your son and she better be godly and... So he says, I want to make sure I know the heart of Abraham. So when he goes and does this, it all happens. So read the story. It's phenomenal. And Eliezer was willing to ask for clarity. Number four, not only did he ask for clarity, he affirmed his commitment. This is the whole hand under the thigh thing. We don't do that nowadays. You know what we do? We write a contract. If you go to a car dealer and you buy a car and you say, I want that car, is it your car? You say no. And the reason you say no is you haven't signed anything. Then they take you into some room and they spend too many hours with you making you buy stuff you don't need. Anyways, off the topic. But you sign that contract. That's the exact same thing that happened here. Eliezer says to Abraham, I'm going to do what you said, and I'm making a commitment to you. And that's what he did. We oftentimes even do it at churches. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, once a year, the pastor would bring everybody into the church, and we would write a commitment card to what we were going to give that year. And when you wrote it, you would oftentimes do it. We do, we do that too with missionaries. We'll say, hey, I'm going to support you, but you really don't support them until you say and you write it down. So that's what Eliezer was making a commitment to. He's saying to his master, I'm going to do what I say. I mean, I'm going to do what you told me to do. I'm committed to it. Number five, when he goes... And he finds Rebecca. And this young girl, she's a servant. 
a godly servant with godly characteristics. She, she not only takes care of his camels and feeds him, she finds a place for them. She goes to her father and she says, Dad, these people need a place to stay. The other thing that's really clear, she's modest. And all Eliezer can do is praise Abraham's faith. Gives all the credit to Abraham for this. And the last thing is, Eliezer used great integrity with his master's money. He, he knew what he could spend for a wife. Call it a dowry system. I have a really high dowry for my daughters. Anyways, let me give you some concepts from this. I'm going to give you six things about a steward. And all of you have been called to be a steward. When you accept Christ, God says, I own you and everything you have, I own. I want you to be a steward of what I've given to you. Everything belongs to God. That's the first point that we get from Eliezer. He knew it all belonged to Abraham. Everything you have belongs to God. And I will tell you, that's where we tend to struggle. That's why I've entitled this. You'll notice at the top, stewardship of treasures is a maturity issue. Stewardship of your time, stewardship of your talent. It's all about maturing in your relationship with Christ. Second thing, we must be ready to do whatever God asks. When God says, I want you to do this, you must be ready to do it. Leads me to point number three. When God asks you to do something, be anxious and willing to ask God for clarity. That's what prayer is about. When God says, I want you to do this, pray about it and make sure you do it the way God wants it done. Not about how you want it done. Number four, do what you say. Affirm your commitments. Don't just say, yeah, I will help and don't follow through. Do what you say. Number five, give all the credit to God. See, once you realize God owns you, God made you, He gave you your gifts, your talents, your abilities. He gave you those opportunities. Everything He's done, He's done it through you. He gets all the glory. And do you know He could take it in a minute? Or He could give more to you in a minute. But you got to realize you're owned by God. Number six, give, have great integrity. You know, we will all stand before God. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. There's two main judgments in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. One is the judgment seat of Christ. And we give an accounting for what we did with what He gave to us. The second judgment is the great white throne judgment. That's for non-believers. It's people that don't know Christ. And they get a reward. They get hell. Or as Andy likes to say, the eternal lake of fire. But for believers, everything that God has given you, all your abilities, all your talents, 
He's given it to you. Everything you own and everything you have is His. And He says, I want you to be a good steward of what I've given to you. That leads me to point number two. Everything God has given to you is to be invested in His kingdom. Go back to our text in Matthew 6.20. It says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. What am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be investing in heaven. But, but here, here's what generally happens. We think of stewardship this way. We think of stewardship, we come to church, we give our tenth or our 10% of our income, and we keep 90% to use however we want. That's not a steward. All of it belongs to God. All 100%. Now, I need to revise that statement. The average Protestant today only gives 2.3%, not 10. See, life is temporary. Your life is temporary. In which Christians, they see themselves, we're, we're an alien in a foreign land. You're a temporary resident on this earth. And God's called you to be a steward of everything He's given to you. To be used for His glory, not for your glory. And an alien was a person who was living in a society that wasn't his own. Now, twice in my life, I've lived in a foreign land. And in Greek, it's a, it can be a sojourner, it could be a stranger. And I can tell you, in both places I lived, they knew I was not from that land. They knew I was a stranger. And some of you in this room you know, yeah, Dave, they're right, you're strange. But the reality is, they knew I wasn't part of that land. The Bible clearly states when you become a Christian, you are no longer part of this earth. Your home is in heaven. In 1 Peter 2.11, it says this. And I love that the New American Standard renders it this way. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. What he's getting at in that text is the world tells us how to live, how to react, and how to respond. That will wage war against your soul. You are a stranger. You have been bought by a price. God owns you. Everything you have, He owns. And He's saying, use it all for my glory. 1 Peter 1.17, he says, If you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during your time of your stay on earth. What Peter is getting at, actually what Jesus is getting at, because he's the author of the Bible, he's saying, you've been given things. Use them to my glory. Use them for God's glory. Get this down, it's in your notes. Once you realize this earth is not your home, you will become a better steward of God's given resources. Once you realize this isn't my home, 
you'll realize that everything that's been given to you is for God's glory. See, all believers have gifts. We know that from Romans 12, 6 and from Andy's sermon last week. All believers have a responsibility to use those gifts. We know that from Luke 12, 41 through 48. All gifts are given to serve one another, to take care of one another. But Proverbs says something very unique to this in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here's the point. It's not about prosperity gospel. That's not what the text is saying. He's saying you give to God first because God owns it all and He will take care of your needs, not your wants. The text is about give to God first. Everything we claim that is ours, is actually owned by God. Therefore, never lose sleep or lose any when you lose anything because you had nothing. We are simply allowed to manage God's things for a short while. Let me give you an illustration of that. Small church, pastor asked the congregation to give a little bit more to get a new drum set and a small sound system. Congregation was able to get the money together and they did that. The next week, it was all stolen. Pastor gets back up and he preaches a sermon. Sermon's over. People came to him and goes, Pastor, somebody stole our stuff. And he said, hmm. Okay, let me give you some clarity. And he says, next week, come and hear my sermon. They, more people came because they wanted to hear what he had to say about this. And he said, let me clarify something to you. That wasn't your drum set. It wasn't your mic. It was God's. They stole from God. They didn't steal from you and they didn't steal from me. They stole from God. The next week, everything was returned in perfect condition. It's interesting, in the first service, a man came up to me and he said, Dave, when I was in Colorado, that exact same thing just happened to our little church. I'm like, tell me more. And he said, yeah, it got out and they had about 200 people in their church. And they would have to bring everything in with a trailer. And somebody stole the whole trailer. They lost everything. So the pastor said, come close. Because they, they had an auditorium. He goes, get close. You know, like when we do a kid's thing, they all sat as close as possible. They didn't have a mic or anything. And he, he said, it got out. The word got out that everything was stolen. Five other churches sent money and equipment to that church to take care of them. See, God's in control. So everything we have, God owns. Get that down. Number two, everything God has given you is to be invested in His kingdom. Think about it. How do you use your house for God's kingdom? How do you use your business for God's kingdom? 
How do you use the stuff you have for God's kingdom? Number three, our giving is founded on a heart of love and worship to God. If your giving is done as an act of worship to God, to glorify God, we won't want to advertise how much we're giving. Because when you give to God, you don't have to take credit for it. It's all His. All you're doing is He's given you stuff and you're giving it back to Him. Throughout my 24 years of being in ministry, I've noticed way too many people come up and go, I gave. They love that personal pronoun. I. And I want to say, no, God gave you all that. Give glory to God. We like taking credit for it. Matthew 26, 21, same text. Very last, or the verse in this text. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when your heart's in tune that God paid for you, He owns you, He owns everything you have, you'll be in tune with giving glory to God with your giving. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, is all about a church giving glory to God when they gave. I only want to read the first five verses. He says this in chapter 8, 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace God, I mean the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflown in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's worship. And then they gave by the will of God to us. See, what happened with the Macedonians? They heard of a need church being persecuted, they were poor. And not only did they give of what they could, they gave beyond that. And they did it because they wanted to worship God. And the rest of chapters 8 and 9 are all about worship. So the point is this. You're not giving to the pastors of this church or the staff. You're not giving to the missionaries that this church supports or the mission agency. When you give, you are giving to God. You've got to get that down. Now, most of the staff told me not to say that. No, I'm joking. They didn't say that. We are giving to God. When you give, you give to God. So let me give you a couple questions as we close our time. Are you a generous giver? Being generous is more about than just giving your money. It's about your time and your talents. Giving generously also takes faith on your part. Because you have to trust when you give that God's going to take and provide for you. I've heard so many stories and seen it myself. When people gave beyond, they come back and go, and God took care of us. And God took care of us. 
And God took care. Yeah, He takes care of His people. The second question is often asked of us on staff is, what about the tithe? What about this 10% thing? Well, let me give you some clarity on that. In Leviticus chapters 27 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, it mentions three tithes. The first one was called the Lord's tithe. You gave a tenth to the Lord. The second one was called the Levitical tithe. You gave a tenth to the Levites. The Levites never had land. So they couldn't produce anything. So in the Old Testament, you had to give a tenth to care for the priest and those who ran the temple. That was called the Levitical tithe. And then every three years, you had to give a charity tithe. That was another tenth. And that was given for this purpose alone, to take care of widows, strangers, and those in need. So when you annualize that out, it comes out to 23%. Oh, but you go, wait, Dave. There's more. Yes, there is. There's a thing called offerings. The Scripture speaks of offerings. These were gifts that were made voluntarily by each person. And most scholars believe it ranged from 40 to 60% of their income. So when people walk up to me and say, I give a tithe, I go, what do you mean by that? Because they can't just go to one verse and say, I give a tenth. It's interesting what Malachi says. It's the 39th book in the Bible. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi says this. The prophet says that they were robbing God of their tithes and offerings, and that's why they were not blessed. Now, when it comes to giving in the New Testament, do you know the word tithe is not mentioned? Now, let me give you Dave Buck's theory on it, and it's worth nothing, but it is my theory. My theory is this. Whenever you pick a percent, it will become legalism. The New Testament clearly states something quite differently. In 2 Corinthians 9-7, it says, each one must give what he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. Meaning, you have to give this percent. For God loves a cheerful giver. We call this grace giving. Our joyful giving is what you find in Scripture. Some people could easily give more than 10. Some people can't. I was preaching one time at my former church, and a young girl comes down the middle aisle after the sermon and says, i got to talk to you for a second. I go, yeah, what about? And she goes, I can't give right now. I said, well, explain. What, what's going on? Why, why do you even feel that way? And she explained her situation. And I knew her situation. Her husband had just been killed in a car accident. She was left with two babies. And I had to tell her, do you realize scripture, what Scripture says about you? And she goes, no. I said, you're not supposed to give. The church is supposed to take care of you. You're a widow. And we're supposed to take care of your two kids. She goes, oh, I was never taught that. She had this legalistic training that if she didn't give, God wouldn't bless her. I thought, oh, how sad that she was taught that. The next elder meeting, the elders came up with a great plan to take care of this young lady. And the church did. So it gets back to, are you giving out of a cheerful heart? It's not about percent. 
Think of it this way. Everything you have, God owns. You're just giving back to God what he's given you. All your talents, all your abilities, all these skills, God gave those to you for his glory. So the concept is this. Give cheerfully as a steward. And everything you have is his anyways. Some people have asked me, well, what about 10%? I go, if you want to do that, that's fine. But don't, don't let that be your regulator. Then the third question is this. What should I be giving to as we finish? We'll be over, just give me five more minutes and we'll make it. So, first of all, the Bible commands us to give to the local church, without a doubt. There's a lot of things the Bible talks about giving to. I want to summarize just four of them today. There's many more. You are to give to the local church. And even in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. We are supposed to give to the local church. Second thing is other organizations or individuals that are ministering the gospel. There are so many organizations that are reaching people with the gospel and setting up churches. We are supposed to be giving to that. Number four, or number three, I'm sorry. We're supposed to give to fellow believers in need. We actually have a benevolent fund that helps people out when they get on tough, they go through tough times. They lose a job, whatever it might be. We help in those situations. But I want you to notice something that's clearly delineated in Scripture. Those who refuse to work are not to be supported. First John 3, James chapter 2, Galatians chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 13, 2 Thessalonians, and the list keeps going on. I think you get the point really quick. If a man is not willing to work and he's able to do it, you're not supposed to support them. You're supposed to support those who are in need on tough times. Number four, give to unbelievers that are in need. You want to impact the world? You take care of some unbeliever that's struggling. They will ask, why are you doing it? And you got to share the gospel with them because of what Christ did for you. So the last question deals with this. What are the guidelines for giving? Number one, give by faith. Give by faith. Don't get stuck. Give by faith. I'll tell you a quick story. I was a youth pastor here. This building didn't exist. Roger Poppin came from a church in Davis where they did not pass the plate. Laurel Glen back then, we passed the plate. And I asked Roger, hey, are we going to ever get to a point we're not passing the plate? And he goes, yeah, when we build this building. And they put four boxes in the back to give. And I said, why, Roger? And he goes, because the money is God's. God will take care of it. I thought, whoa. Now, I've been to churches that pass the plate. I actually like that too, because it reminds me to give. <laughs> but when you think of it that way, it's all God's, it's His money, and He puts the burden on us to be involved in that. So first of all, give by faith, give purposefully, give prayerfully and carefully, give regularly. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, on the first day of the week, each one should give. 
It's interesting, stewardship, this is the group that watches our finances. We've talked a lot about this. It's, I think it's intriguing. People are starting to do this. I'm going to wait and see what my taxes are at the end of the year, and if I, and my tax accountant tells me to give more, I'll do it. I'm like, what page is that in? I missed it. The Bible clearly says you store up to give now. Not when it's good for you. Remember, it's God owns you. And He owns everything you have. Give personally and you might go, ooh, that's pretty obvious. No, the idea of giving personally is you need to think it through. Don't let pressure from somebody else. You do it because you want to give to God and what God's doing. And you will be held accountable for it. You're not going to stand before God one day and go, and God says, why did you give? And he goes, well, everybody else was given 2%, so I thought I'd give 2%. That's not going to cut it with God. So let me give you three practical challenges this morning, and then we will have some baptisms, okay? So um, first one is this. You know, buy someone a meal or give to someone who is in need without them knowing. When I was being discipled, this pastor took on three college guys. I was one of them. And he challenged us. He says, I want you to give to somebody in need, but I don't want them to know that you did it. It was a challenge. All three of us took that challenge on. There was a young girl in our college group that had a baby out of wedlock working two jobs. I thought, I know who I'm giving to. I'm going to give to her. And this is back in the day when most people still had mailboxes. You remember this type? Anybody could open them. So I went by and I put some money in her mailbox. And the pastor kept saying, I want to know how you feel about it. You know what I did? Every time I saw her, I would say things like this. Hey, how are you doing? Anything new? Anything going on in your life? She'd go, no, just working and taking care of my kid. I'm like, that's not what I want to hear. This went on. So I meet with that pastor all three of us did. And he goes, hey, how are you guys doing? And I was honest with him. I go, I want to know what happened. He goes, see, that's your problem. You have a pride problem. You're not giving God's money. You think it's yours. Oh, did I learn the lesson? I'm like, can I have somebody else discipling me now? Because he was teaching us to give and let God take care of the results. So give to somebody and don't take any credit for it. Now, some of you do that. Give to a startup ministry. You want to get fired up about what God's doing in this world? Give to a startup ministry. And by chance, we got one going on right now. You might not, or you might have heard of him, but the real name is Baby Banks. His parents are Josh and Drew White. But Baby Banks is going to go on to a small church in a rural town that needs a pastor, and his dad's going to be that pastor. Josh and Drew are going to leave here and go and minister at a church where there's great need. Man, get involved in that. Not only get involved financially with it, find out what you can do. Find out how you can pray for them. Find out how you can go and visit and help. Because guess what? There's no language barrier. Give to a startup ministry Third thing is give generously by faith and watch God work. Watch God work. 
when you give by faith, and I mean you stretch, watch what God does. Not only in the person or group you're sending it to, watch what He does in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You that You've given us time, talents, and gifts, and treasures to be used for Your glory. And You've given them to us. Help us to recognize that. Help us to realize none of this is ours. And that You can take it in a moment's notice. So Lord, use us mightily for Your work, Your kingdom. And help us to invest in Your kingdom, not ours. And we'll give You the praise and glory for it. And we pray this in Your Son's name, Jesus, the One that paid the ultimate price so that we can have heaven and be with You throughout eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. So we're going to worship together. And then right after that, we're going to have baptisms.